Good evening. Glad you have chosen to worship with us this Good Friday evening. If you're a regular or part of our church family, you know we have a long tradition of Good Friday services that are beautiful. Uh, times of celebration, though sober, uh, because of the heaviness of what tonight's really all about. And we want to let that heaviness sit on us at a level so that the joy that we experience can come from a deeper place and not just a shallow, momentary, passing emotion, but from a settled conviction that God loves us in such an extraordinary way. He has done what we would find incredible and unthinkable to not only show his love, but to actually rescue us from really from ourselves and from the wrath that that brings upon us. Uh, if you're a guest, we want you to know God loves you very much. Tonight is a little different than a lot of our services. It's, it's somber in tone and intentionally so, but it has so much meaning to it. Love to have you join us anytime. This coming Sunday, Easter Sunday, we have a wonderful time of worship at 10 o'clock. Every Sunday, 10 o'clock online, you can reach us through www dot redemptionhc.com. That's our church website. I would love to interact with you. If you have any questions or any needs or any concerns, any way that I can pray for you, you can reach me directly at robertb at rhchurches.com. God loves you very much, and Good Friday is about him showing that. It's about him addressing what we all need. See, the scripture is very, very clear that we're all broken, and it's not just um, our circumstances that make life hard and make life go the wrong way. It's actually our hearts, uh, because within us, there's this bent to sometimes willfully choose wrong things that are so damaging to us and so dishonoring to God. And that's, that's sin. That's something that's broken within us that needs to be fixed. We have to be rescued um, because we can't change ourselves and living in sin, being one who is bent and, and broken away from God in our hearts means we're also separated from him. God is holy and he cannot have relationship with sinful people, at least not a personal, intimate relationship, the kind that he wants and the kind that you and I actually all really long for and need. And that's what Good Friday is about. It's about Jesus doing something extraordinary by dying the death we should have died so that we can share in the life that he lives. It's about him removing God's wrath and removing the stain and, and the darkness and the brokenness of sin and giving us righteousness that comes from him, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything he's done. And then living and walking with us in our daily reality to help us live a life in partnership with God, life that is still human, Still, we have struggles, but it's different because God is with us. Good Friday is the extraordinary cost that God had to pay for that to be a reality for you and me. It's a time where beauty was born in brutality and victory was won through violence. It's a time where suffering brought salvation and it is a time of deep hope. I want to read you a verse from Scripture this comes from 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, He himself, speaking of Jesus, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Tonight we want to focus on the cross and him bearing our sins in his body on the tree. I, I collect crosses from all over the world. This is one my wife gave me a few years ago, and I find it particularly beautiful, the, the wood grain and the finish that's so uh, beautiful. And I also find it very beautiful in its symbolism, not just picturing and pointing to the actual cross, but even the way this one is made. It's, it's natural wood. Um, and at this shape and at this time, after 
the fact. It's beautiful and lovely. But if you think about it, this was a tree that was violently taken and it was stripped and it died. And it points to a tree long ago that God himself watched grow, that he nurtured, that he chose, that he sent the rain on and sent the sunshine on. And he chose that tree knowing that it would be used one day for a horrible and glorious purpose. It would be used for his son's death. And that tree was violently taken and stripped and died so that I might have life. And that happened to the tree so that it could, it could become the instrument by which that life would, would, would be born. It would be offered as I was made right with God, whose own son was also stripped, violently taken, and died. It's a beautiful message of hope, even though it's a somber one. And tonight we want to let that heaviness rest on us and yet let the joy well up from within the dreadfulness of our sin, and yet the depth of God's love is pictured in the cross of Jesus Christ. Tonight, our pastor Scott Wilson is going to be sharing the meditation from Scripture on the cross and on what Jesus did, and then we'll have a season of reflections and readings and prayers. Uh, I just want to pray to get us started, so if you would join me. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for your suffering, your willing offering of your life, in our place. We needed rescue and you chose to rescue and you did so extraordinary cost. Father, thank you for the love that drove that. And tonight I pray for all of us that in new ways we would, we would really grasp the depth of what you did, the seriousness of our sin, the dire condition of our neediness, the grace with which you satisfied the wrath that was due us, and exchanged our death for your life by dying in our place. Lord Jesus, thank you for that. Holy Spirit, would you work in our hearts to bring us to worship, to bring us to uh, a response of confession, a response of um, celebration, a response of surrender. Uh, work in the hearts of people who may not have a personal relationship with you. Show them your love, Father. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is an unbelievable privilege to be able to lead us in this Good Friday meditation. This is obviously a vastly different Good Friday than any of us have ever experienced before. And frankly, I hope any of us will ever experience again. I truly miss being with our church family. Yet I am grateful that we're still able together to remember the work of Christ on the cross. And that is what we are going to do this evening. So if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 3. We've taken a break from our study through the book of John. Pastor Robert has been leading us in a, in a special series for the time that we find ourselves in. But I wanted to circle back to this chapter we talked about not too long ago. And, and you might remember in this chapter, Jesus is having a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. He's a, he's a Pharisee. He's a ruler of the Jews. And they're having a conversation about how someone can be saved, how someone can have eternal life. And, and when Christ says one has to be born again in order to receive eternal life, Nicodemus is confused. And so we pick up with the conversation beginning in verse 9, John chapter 3, where it says, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So in these wonderful verses, we're primarily going to be focusing on verses 14 and 15, where Christ refers to this Old Testament event that Nicodemus would have been well aware of, but he learned ultimately was actually a typological picture of Christ on the cross. And so to have an understanding of what Jesus is referring to, you can keep your place in John chapter 3, but please flip all the way back to Numbers chapter 21, if you would. Numbers 21. And in this chapter, we find out that the Israelites have been wandering in the desert for quite some time now. They've been led by and cared for by God, but they complain and they rebel against him. So let's find out what happened. Numbers 21, picking up in verse 4, where it says, From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we, we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit, bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So the Israelites have complained against God here, frankly, as they had many times before. This, this one was actually a direct attack on God's provision of food. You remember he'd been providing manna from heaven for them daily, but that apparently was no longer good enough for them. So they rebelled against him and his provision. And so in response and judgment, God sent these fiery serpents, these, these snakes. And when they bit people, many of them died. And for those that hadn't died, they, they recognized their sin and they cried out in repentance and they asked Moses, please, to, to pray to the Lord on their behalf that he would remove these fiery serpents so that they can live. And in response, God did uh, one of the most unexpected, we, we might even say just sort of strange things. In response, the Lord told Moses to fashion a bronze serpent, to put it on a pole, and all who had been bitten and were sure to die, if they looked upon the bronze serpent, they would instantaneously, miraculously be healed and live. So this is what Christ is referring to in John chapter 3 in answering Nicodemus on how one can be saved, how one can have eternal life. And of course, it's, it's a profound example of ultimately how all of Scripture points us to Christ and the gospel. I want to make, a, make it very clear, this is real history, this actually happened, yet Christ in John 3 is telling us this ultimately was a picture of us and his work on the cross 
And so in that, it points us to five essential truths of the cross of Christ, the gospel, as we are focusing on the work of Christ on the cross this Good Friday evening. So the first gospel truth that the bronze serpent points us to is that the Israelites were in this predicament in the first place. They were under this death sentence because of their rebellion against their sin against God. And of course, it's the same for all of us. The entire human race is in the same predicament for, as Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is not a sinner except for Christ, of course. The second truth we find is that the serpents represented God's punishment for their sin, and that punishment is death. As difficult as this judgment of fiery serpents might be to, to read, it is a reminder of how serious our sin is and the eternal death sentence that everyone apart from Christ ultimately is under. Again, as it says in Romans 2.5, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And of course, the righteous judgment of God, as Romans 6.23 says, is death. The wages of sin, the penalty for sin is death. The third gospel truth the bronze serpent points us to is that the, the saving object that was lifted up, the bronze serpent, was the very emblem of their judgment. In other words, they were bitten by these poisonous snakes, yet in order to be saved, they had to look upon a representative of those snakes. And this is one of these things that's just truly unbelievable about Scripture. Like I said, although real people were, were really saved from real physical death 1,500 years before in the desert, ultimately Christ says here in John 3 that the bronze serpent on the pole was a perfect typological picture of his work on the cross, Jesus Christ who is fully God but who is also fully man, and he was lifted up on that cross for the sins of his people as they were placed on him, the perfect holy representative of the fallen human race. As it says again in Romans 8, 3 and 4, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. And of course, that horrible yet ultimately beautiful verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he, God the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no, no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The fourth truth we're reminded of, is there was nothing the Israelites could do to escape the certain judgment of death. They were desperate for a Savior. And again, it is the same for all of us, as it says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one can do anything to save themselves. We are all desperate for our Savior, which leads us to the fifth gospel truth the bronze serpent points us to, and that is that the Israelites were required to look upon the serpent in order to live. So just as the bronze serpent was placarded to a pole and, and all who looked upon it, even though they deserved death, were instantaneously saved and received life in the same way, Jesus Christ was placarded to a wood pole, a cross, and lifted up. And even though we deserve death, all who look upon him and believe are saved and receive eternal life. 
But that, that looking for the Israelites meant two things. First, it meant that they would have to recognize, as we said, that their sin was, was what caused this death sentence in the first place, which they did. We read that. And secondly, they would have to believe in faith that their looking upon the broad serpent really represented the healing and life-giving, or we should say life-saving power of God. In other words, they would have to repent and believe. And that's exactly what Christ says about himself in his work on the cross in verse 15. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And belief is, is acknowledging from, from the depths of your soul that you are a sinner worthy of death and repenting of that and putting your faith in Jesus Christ, the only eternal substitute for your sins and in him receiving life and fellowship. That's the ultimate message of the cross that we see pictured way back in the bronze serpent in Numbers 21, and that is believe and live or disbelieve and be judged. As Christ goes on to say in verse 18, as we read, he who, he who does not believe has been judged already. And the reason why someone who does not believe in Jesus as their Savior has been judged already is because, as we said, no one can save themselves. So there is nothing left at that point other than judgment and death. But for all of us who have believed, we have life. We have eternal life and fellowship with our triune God in Christ as we have looked upon Christ hanging on that cross in our place. We know we deserve death, but God in his perfect love and justice sent Christ to be our substitute, to propitiate the wrath of God, to take away the wrath of God the Father for our sins, and through that we receive life in him. And that is what we remember tonight. We stand and, and gaze at the cross of Christ in utter joy, amazement, awe, and worship that Christ, God himself, loves us so much that he would come and suffer in ways that we will never completely understand so that we who do not deserve it receive eternal life in him and we will praise him for that for eternity. And we're going to do that now. We're going to praise him for that together.
We're going to spend the latter half of our service prayerfully reflecting on Scripture. So let me explain how we're going to do that and why we're going to do that. We're going to read through six different gospel narratives. These are stories that lead up to Jesus' death on the cross. And as we read them, I encourage you to close your eyes, to immerse yourself in the story, to imagine what it would have been like to be there. If it's more helpful for you to read along, you can do that, obviously. After we read a passage, we're going to snuff out a candle. These are sad, somber, dark stories that lead up to Jesus' death. Obviously, the cross is the greatest gift to us where we find our salvation, but it's also the saddest moment in human history where humans actually kill God. and Our, our sin is revealed. It's on full display. And so to capture some of that darkness, we'll snuff out a candle. You'll then see my face, and I'll ask you a question or give you a prompt that you can sit with in prayer, and then we'll leave a space of silence for you to pray. The reason we're doing this is really twofold. There's, there's two ideas that we want to sit with. On the one hand, we want to think about Jesus' suffering, and then we also want to think about our own sin. It's important for us to think about Jesus' suffering because as we do that, we encounter God's love. Scripture is really clear that the greatest expression of love is somebody being willing to die for you, and Jesus has done that for us. And so as we are confronted by Jesus' agony, his suffering and his pain, we're also confronted by his love for us. And so it's important for us to think about his suffering as a means of internalizing his love. It's important for us to think about our sin and to feel the weight of that because if we have a small view of sin, if we think sin isn't that big of a deal, then we'll have a small view of grace. We'll think that grace isn't that big of a deal. But if we have a big view of sin, if we think sin is a big deal, then we'll have a bigger view of God's grace. So it's important for us to think about and to confess our sins to God. So let me say two final things and then I'll pray for us. Regarding Jesus' suffering, while it's absolutely true that Jesus died for all of us collectively, and it's really important that we never have an individualized faith, it is important that we have a personal faith, a personal relationship with God. And so as we think about Jesus' suffering, while it's true that he suffered for all of us, I want you to think about the fact that Jesus suffered for you, that it's personal. And as we think about sin, I simply want to remind you that though your sin may run deep, God's grace runs deeper always. Let me pray for us and then we'll begin. God, we ask that you would encounter us and reveal yourself to us as we sit with your scripture and pray. Help us to know your love more. Help us to know your grace more as we sit with your suffering and our sin. Help us to be honest and to confess, trusting that there's grace because of what Jesus has done. Amen. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, went to the leading priests and asked, how much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. From that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. When it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the twelve. While they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, Am I the one, Lord? He replied, 
one of you who has just eaten from this bowl with me will betray me. For the Son of Man must die, as the scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. Judas, the one who would betray him, also asked, Rabbi, am I the one? As we read about Judas betraying Jesus, let's spend time thinking about the ways that we betray Jesus. So spend this time in silence confessing your sins to God, big and small. You could also think about the fact that Judas betrays Jesus for money. You could think about what do you betray Jesus for? Is it to fit in, to gain comfort or pleasure, or to just do what you want? So talk to God about your sins and talk to God about why you choose those sins. Then, accompanied by the disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room and went, as usual, to the Mount of Olives. There he told them, Pray that you will not give in to temptation. He walked away about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. He prayed more fervently, and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. At last he stood up again and returned to the disciples, only to find them asleep, exhausted from grief. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. Here we see Jesus in agony in the garden as he thinks about going to the cross and facing the Father's wrath. And yet he does it. He does it so that you don't have to face the Father's wrath. So in silence, spend time thanking Jesus for taking that weight, for taking God's wrath. You could also think about the fact that Jesus asks for another way, but ultimately surrenders to God. And maybe there's something in your life that you're clinging on to that you know God wants you to surrender. And in this time of prayer, surrender that to him.
And even as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the twelve disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They had been sent by the leading priests and elders of the people. The traitor, Judas, had given them a prearranged signal. You will know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. So Judas came straight to Jesus. Greetings, Rabbi, he exclaimed, and gave him the kiss. Jesus said, My friend, go ahead and do what you have come for. Then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. Then Jesus said to the crowd, Am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there teaching every day. But this is all happening to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded in the scriptures. At that point, all the disciples deserted him and fled. Jesus is not only betrayed by Judas, but also abandoned by his friends. So I want you to take a moment to imagine what that would have been like for Jesus, and think about moments in your own life where you felt 
betrayed or abandoned or lonely or hurt. And then spend time talking to Jesus about those hurts, about those pains, knowing that he is somebody who has been through that kind of experience. Inside, the leading priests and the entire High Council were trying to find witnesses who would lie about Jesus so they could put him to death. But even though they found many who agreed to give false witness, they could not use anyone's testimony. Finally, two men came forward who declared, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the High Priest stood up and said to Jesus, well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus replied, You have said it, and in the future you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, Blasphemy! Why do we need other witnesses? You have all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they shouted. He deserves to die. Then they began to spit in Jesus' face and beat him with their fists, and some slapped him. At the end of this passage, we read that Jesus is spit on. I want you to imagine that. Imagine the injustice, the insanity, the sadness of this picture. The God of the universe, who has come to love and save people, is spit on. And yet in our sin, we spit on God. And I imagine the person who spit on Jesus walked away and thought nothing of it. And often we walk away from sin and think nothing of it. So I want us to again pray about our sin and confess it, but specifically asking God to reveal to us sin that we are prone to dismiss or think of as no big deal. So we can think of Psalm 139 as a guide here at the end in verse 23. It says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. 
So ask God to reveal the sinful, grievous ways that we're prone to miss.
Pilate asked them, Then what should I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him! Why? Pilate demanded. What crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, Crucify him! So to pacify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. The soldiers took Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters, called the Praetorium, and called out the entire regiment. They dressed him in a purple robe, and they wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. Then they saluted him and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him on the head with a reed stick, spit on him, and dropped to their knees in mock worship. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him again. Then they led him away to be crucified. Imagine for a moment the intensity of this scene. The mobs are screaming for Jesus to be crucified. They want a criminal to be set free instead of him. Jesus is whipped and he's flogged. He's being taunted and mocked. It's horrible chaos. Now I want you to imagine being in that scene. And what do you wish that you could have said to Jesus? What do you wish you could have done? Maybe you want to apologize to Jesus for all of us. Maybe you want to thank him for bearing this burden. Maybe you want to yell back out at the crowd. I don't know, but whatever it is, I want you to, to think about that and then express that to God now. When they came to a place called the Skull, they nailed him to the cross, and two criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. The crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he really is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. 
they called out to him, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, Don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you today you will be with me in paradise. By this time it was about noon and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. We've heard about Jesus being betrayed, abandoned, alone, spit on, mocked, and now he breathes his last breath. In this time of silence, I just want to give you space to say to God anything that you want to say to God. So this is free space for you to reflect on what we've read and talked about and share with him anything that's on your heart. Took the 
As we end our time, I want to leave you with a quote from a man named John Stott. He, he says that before we can see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. And that's really what tonight has been about, owning that the cross is something that we caused. It's something done by us. But as we do that, as we own our sin, we can better understand that the cross is something done for us. And so as you live tomorrow, 
And we look forward to Easter, continue to think about the suffering of Jesus and the weight of our own sin as a way to better understand and and encounter God's love and his grace. God bless you. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a good evening.